Cousins, greetings. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the score's NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and joining me for our final episode of 2022 is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolf? I'm excited. I'm excited uh, for the holiday season. Merry Christmas to those who celebrate. Happy Hanukkah, Joe. Um, whatever, whatever holiday you may or may not be celebrating over the couple weeks here, uh, enjoy them. Hopefully get some family time, friends time, whatever it is with those you love. Uh, you can start it off with the podcast you love today. But the, the reason I think I'm excited too is because I know the couple teams we're going to talk about today, one of them doing well record-wise, one of them a little disappointing, but both I think very underwhelming to us. And so I think it's going to be a nice way to kind of kick off the holiday season and end 2022 in Pound the Rock, where we can talk about a couple teams that I think at some point we're both going to call frauds. It'll probably be a player we call a fugazi. Like, it's just going to be a great way to end it. It's also fitting this falls on the uh, fictional holiday of Festivus, because to both the Atlanta Hawks and the New York Knicks, I've got a lot of problems with you people, and I'm about to tell you about them. <laughs> yes, this episode is definitely going to be an airing of grievances, so... Yeah. Which is hilarious because these two teams have a combined record of like four games over five because I think the Knicks are four games over and the Hawks are five hundred. But we're going to talk about them like they're four, combined forty games under. Well, I don't think necessarily we need to go that negative, but I no, think I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I don't yeah. think we are going to go so far as to call these teams frauds because they don't really purport to be anything exactly. other than what they are. At least right now. I agree with what you're saying in that it's hard to call either team frauds when neither one of us saw them. Maybe the Hawks closer to, obviously, but neither one of us really saw them as true blue contenders this year. Um, the Knicks, I'd say it's the record that is fraudulent. Yeah, so that we can get into talking about that. With the Hawks, I, I think we can at least say they probably imagine themselves being a lot better than they've been so far. And yeah. The impetus, I guess, of the Hawks discussion or our reason for wanting to talk about them ostensibly was this report from Chris Haynes, which wasn't really a report. Like he cited as his sources rival executives. And I think when that's the case, it's usually just speculation. Like maybe, yeah. maybe sometimes there's some actual intel there, but it's rival executives. Like what reason do they have to be feeding this information to a reporter and putting it out there in the public sphere? Like, of course they want to sow chaos when another star player is involved. So yeah. I, rival, ex rival executives are also how you get quote unquote reports where it's like the Lakers are uh, monitoring names like Pascal Siakam, Trey young, insert other like young star here. Like, yeah. Cause rival executives can be delusional and also, aren't really concerned with how realistic their wish list is at the time they might just tell a reporter. Yeah, I mean, look, a rival executive could be like, hey, guess what? My phone keeps ringing and the Lakers keep calling trying to get Pascal Siakam for the scraps that they have to offer. But them speculating that maybe Trey Young, if things don't go that well for the Hawks, is going to ask out. I mean, I don't know that there's anything necessarily behind that. I don't know that there's not either. But also that's something that you and I could speculate about as well. So I didn't necessarily want to, you know, give a ton of credence to that report so much as I just wanted to use it as an opportunity to talk about the Hawks more generally, because we talked about this team fairly in depth early in the season, you know, maybe three weeks into the season or something like that as basically one of the most confounding teams in the league. 
And we decided we would revisit this team a little later on to see if they had taken steps to answering some of the questions that we had about them. So this felt like a good time in the wake of that Trey Young report, you know, with as many grains of salt as you want to take it with, to revisit this team and see where they're at, what has and hasn't changed, and what direction they're heading in. So I'll start by asking you, Cash. I mean, first of all, what do you make of that Chris Haynes report and, you know, of Trey Young's potential disillusionment? And what do you make of the Hawks? And and do you feel like they have answered any of the questions that we had about them early in the season? Like, what do you think about where they're at right now based on what you've seen? I definitely don't think they've answered any of the questions we had for them earlier in the season. I think they're as confounding as ever. Then there's another part of me that's like, well, they're not confounding. They're just a very average team. And that's why they're at 500. Like there's nothing confounding about it in terms of whether I believe the report or, you know, my thoughts on Trey's potential disillusionment in Atlanta. I would say not that I think it's impossible that, you know, he could be starting to feel anxious. there, like a little uneasy about what's happening, but I'd find it hard to believe he'd kind of have those feelings now already. Like he's got the big long-term deal. They did make a big move to try to appease him and try to improve the team by training for literally a, a, like a 2022 all-star in DeJounte Murray, during which they gave up three first rounders, two of which were their own plus a fir- uh, first round swap. So even though we talk about how like, look, p- you know, part of being a pro athlete and getting to the absolute top level is you don't necessarily think logically. You think you can do anything. You probably have a very like outsized view of the things you can do and what you're responsible for and what you're not. And so I understand that like maybe Trey Young doesn't have the self-awareness that we would assign to the average non-professional athlete person. But I do think he has to have at least some, whether it's self-awareness or an awareness in general to not be like, okay, three months into this kind of new situation that the team really went almost all in to try to like help me and make us a more immediate winner. Like a few months into that, I'm so upset with the fact we're at 500, not even a losing team. I'm so upset with the fact we're a very up and down team that I'm starting to think I might want out of here. Like I, I have a hard time believing that would have happened so quickly after him signing the big deal after them getting DeJounte. So that's my thoughts on that. Um, now, if he actually does feel that way, man, that's... I know a lot of people have put it out there too, but like that is a tough look for a guy whose limitations are a big part of the reason the Hawks are in the spot they're in. And again, that goes to the, like the lack of self-awareness thing. And I'd argue, while more than half the league would be lining up for Trey Young services, even with those limitations, I would argue that him not being able to see how his limitations are contributing to all this would be at least somewhat of a red flag for me if I was a team that in, you know, say a make-believe world where Trey Young straight up does say, you know what, I actually want out. I would, again, it's not, I'm not saying I wouldn't want Trey Young because trust me, even with the limitations, I understand the offensive impact he has, how great he is, what he's done on big stages already in the playoffs in his young career. But the lack of awareness and the lack of ownership over how he has contributed to some of the negatives with this team would be a cause for concern for me if I'm an executive that's, you know, being asked to give up what, like, what the hell would Trey Young cost given what DeJounte costs or even Donovan Mitchell, who's older and I think had less team control at that point. Like, 
you're going to give a four or five first round picks for this guy? Like it's. Well, that's the thing. And it's less to me about whatever issues of self-awareness you might have with Trey than it is about the concrete problems with his game. Like the, the problems that that poses in terms of building a successful team around him and what it would cost to get him. And that's when I think it becomes really uncomfortable because whether you're just completely depleting your draft pick stockpile or completely decimating your depth, you have to think about what you'd actually have left around him and then whether the challenges that come with building around Trey Young are going to be surmountable. Like if he just straight up demands a trade, I feel like he's going to find himself in a situation that a lot you know, like Kevin Durant is a perfect example. And with the way that KD is playing this year, and especially the fact that he has been available for all but one of the Nets games while playing at a you know near MVP level is maybe making some teams rethink their unwillingness to trade for him in the offseason. And I'll, you know, I'll cop to saying like I thought that some of those teams had good reason not to, you know, sell the farm to get him. And I'm rethinking that a little bit too now because of how ridiculously well he's played and how healthy he's been while being, if he's not the minutes leader in the NBA, he's definitely close. Point being, he wanted a trade, tried to force the team's hand, but didn't have a ton of leverage because of the term left on his deal. And the fact that the team didn't have any real reason to trade him for anything less than an absolute godfather offer. And I think it's fair to wonder whether similarly, you know, for completely different reasons, obviously, because Trey is, still extremely young and has been healthy for pretty much his entire career. But for the other reasons we mentioned, the defensive limitations, the challenges that come along with that, I think that that could make it tricky for him to actually get what he wants in that situation. But to focus just on like the issues with this Hawks team right now, I was super excited about them getting DeJounte. And I, quite honestly, I would do that trade again if I was them because he's yeah. been awesome. He's been really, really good. And I think given I think he he I do think he slowed down from like I thought he started the season a lot yes. better than he's playing right now. Agree, but I think I still think that he's been more or less what they would have expected Fair. or hoped yeah. for him Fair. to be on balance. Like he's been really good at both mm -hmm. ends of the floor. And I said this at the time when they made the trade, right? Because the team is still really young. Now obviously they're gonna have a free agent decision to make uh, you know what, after next season, he's coming up for a new deal. Yeah. They're not going to extend him because of the extension rules that basically limit what he would be able to make on an extension. And because he's on such a team-friendly deal now, that's just not going to happen. But assuming that they're just willing to pay him whatever to keep him around long-term, there's a long runway here. And I said at the time, it doesn't have to work right away to ultimately be a success. But the early returns haven't been great. And obviously, if Trey is feeling antsy and disillusioned, then that changes things regarding the length of the timeline. So I guess, I mean, look, the team's what, 16 and 16, right? They're a 500 team. They're 19th in offense. That's, that's down from second last year. They're 17th in defense, which is an improvement, but not really enough of one to offset the decline in offensive efficiency. And I think the really worrying thing is we're almost halfway through the season and I still don't see Trey and DeJounte operating in any kind of cooperative partnership or amplifying each other. Like 
in transition, I guess it's a little bit different, but certainly in the half court, they're still just mostly operating independently of one another. You know, each of them doing their thing in pick and roll or in isolation while the other one is kind of just there. And I, I just, it's it's frustrating to me watching them that they haven't made any real strides toward figuring that out and and making it a little bit more synergistic. And even like the transition stuff where I do feel like that's that's where they've jived the best. Early in the season, I felt like the Hawks were running a lot more and they had one of the league's best transition offenses. And now they're basically just middle of the pack in terms of transition frequency and they're scoring way less efficiently on the break than they were early in the year. And so you, you can look at it and they're still pretty decent with both guys on the floor. Uh, I checked today and it, they had a plus 2.7 net rating when both of them are out there. But when you're talking about the two best players on a team exactly. with, with aspirations of, you know, at least winning a playoff series this year, given, uh, you know, what they sacrificed in, in future capital in the offseason, that's super disappointing. Yeah. And like pl- pl- a, a nearly plus three net for a team. Fine. You're like that, through 30 games. You're like that's solid. You can you can definitely do something with that. But to your point, and I had the exact same note. It's like that sounds all right. But when your two best players are on the court and you're supposed to be a good team, let alone a contender, that number should be way higher. And then it's like you can separate them. And so with yep. with Trey on court and Dejounte off, they're like minus 7.5 per hundred possessions, and their defense is a disaster. It's like 123 or something. And then with Trey, uh, with Dejounte on and Trey off, they're like minus four, and their defense is really good, but their offense is a disaster. Which is like rinse and repeat, you know, like the Trey Young conundrum. Where have we heard this before? They cannot defend with him on the court, and they can't score with him on the bench. And it's like I really did think that getting Dejounte would kind of address both of those things, and it weirdly hasn't really addressed either, even though he individually, I think, has been really good. So this is why, and I agree with you, I think they're as confounding as ever. There are so many, there are like some positive indicators that you can look at and we can talk about those and reasons to believe that this will get better. And there are just as many reasons to feel like, wow, this is actually really not working. (laughs) It's kind of a disaster. I mean, on the positive side, first of all, like Trey is going to shoot the ball better than he has so far this season. I would have to think, but he's at like 46% from two point range and 31% from three point range. Uh, he just, I don't know. He just hasn't found the stroke this season. And also just his finishing around the rim has been really bad, like just uncharacteristically bad. Part of that has to do, I think with the Hawks poor spacing and just like complete lack of three-point threats. Uh, So maybe that is more a structural issue than an individual one. But generally, I think he'll be better. And even in the absence of that, he completely makes their offense go with his playmaking. Like his passing is still so, so special. He's still, you know, maybe the best in the league in terms of just like operating a pick and roll with a straight dive man. And his ability to take those two or three extra probe dribbles to basically like wait out the tag man until he recovers to the corner or wait for the big man to commit or both of those things happening at the same time. Like such a good and patient pick and roll operator. Uh, 
you know, his hit ahead passes in transition, all of that, like he is the lifeblood of the Hawks offense still, but you know, the defense is, is as bad as ever. So I don't entirely know what you do with that. And, and, and like, to, it, I was just say, and, and in Trey's defense, which I, you can never defend his defense, but in Trey's defense overall, what I'd say is that if DeJounte was able to prop up those trayless lineups and minutes in ways that we thought he could. And it's weird because I'm with you. It's not, it's not that I'm looking at those lineups or watching him and be like, DeJounte's not good enough. Like he's been fine. I guess it's the rest of the lineups with him. But if those DeJounte led Trey off lineups were working the way we thought they could, and the Hawks were able to score without Trey Young on the court in ways they haven't been able to before, we're talking about this team a lot different right now. Now that doesn't mean we'd be talking about a team we both thought would be a contender, but a team that would probably be at least a couple games, if not more over 500 and not quite in, in the confounding spot we see them in. So then I started asking myself, well then like, what is it? Is it that the guys outside of their top two just aren't good enough? Because if they can't find their way to even like half-ass passable offense mm-hmm. when Trey's off, but they've got DeJounte Murray on the court, like maybe that's the rest of the roster problem. Then I started asking myself, well, maybe though I don't disagree with them trading for DeJounte, when you have a player like Trey Young, do you maybe go about roster building in a different way where rather than spending a lot of those assets and, and burning a lot of those bullets on a player that is also pretty ball dominant, should you have tried to find a player on like the same impact level as DeJounte? Don't get me wrong, like an all-star impact player, but that one that maybe doesn't actually need the ball all that much to impact the game the way DeJounte does. Like there are a lot of questions that we can ask about that. And I'm not, I know DeJounte is not a one-way player, but he's a good defensive player. Like he's not, he doesn't need the ball to impact the game completely, but he is still offensively a pretty ball dominant player. And I do wonder about that. Like maybe when you have a Trey Young, should you just accept the fact that, look, we have Trey Young, we have this very like generational offensive carrying defense manipulating player as aesthetically unpleasing as it might be and though there are definitely roster construction questions when you have a guy like that on the defensive end should we instead be using our assets to find players you know like in Denver like when Denver got Aaron Gordon and I know Jokic is obviously a way way different player than Trey Young on both ends of the court but I'm just saying like should you maybe be using your assets to go after players like that who can have impacts on the game that are almost all-star level without actually needing the ball almost at all, right? And I don't know, maybe maybe that's a question the Hawks have to ask themselves as they continue to go forward. I don't think so. Because I think in that construction, you're ultimately still going to be capped mm-hmm. in terms of how far you can go. And maybe they are anyway, right. but I don't have an issue with the process behind getting a guy like DeJounte. And yeah, would it be great if he was a better three-point shooter? For sure. Would it be better if he was just generally a a better off-ball player? Like, he has to wear some of that, too. He 100%. He isn't exactly like an ace relocator off of the ball. He's not making those kind of, like, stampede cuts and punching gaps in the way that you would like to see from a player with his physical abilities and his skill set. Like, he's not doing a whole lot to amplify Trey either. But I think the idea behind hey, let's get somebody who can 
get Trey some more catch and shoot looks rather than him having to create everything for himself. Let's get somebody who actually challenges him to improve as an off ball player. I was hopeful that we were actually going to see that, that he was going to rise to that challenge, especially because, like you mentioned, he campaigned for them to go and get DeJounte. This is what he wanted. So it's that much more disappointing to see that he's not really doing any of the things that he ought to be doing in order to facilitate and accommodate his new running mate. So I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see and we'll get more data points moving forward about whether those adaptations can be made. But... I don't have an issue with the type of player that they targeted. I do have an issue with, like, I, I just think about how many of these issues would be solved by just still having Kevin Herter on the roster. Yeah. Rather than having traded him seemingly just for luxury tax reasons. And, yeah. like, you know, I think there's also a case to be made that Herter could never have become the type of player he's become in Sacramento as an Atlanta Hawk. And I mentioned I agree this with when that. I I mentioned this when I wrote about the Kings and like how important Herder has been to to their offense completely exploding. Like when he was in Atlanta, so much of his offense was stationary. You know, it was spot ups or it was him um you know, sometimes being able to attack with an advantage, but a lot of the time just sort of having to catch a grenade after Trey had dribbled like 14 seconds off of the clock and like I think we're seeing in Sacramento that being in constant motion and getting like so much of his offense off of movement is way more conducive to his skill set. And that's not just on Trey. Like the, the Hawks didn't have any kind of DHO operator nearly on the level of Sabonis to kind of unlock him as that type of threat. But, you know, that's another thing that the Hawks kind of have to look at and be like, man, are we doing enough to actually maximize our entire team rather than just I don't know. I mean, again, like even if he was just there doing what he'd been doing in the past, that would really help in terms of, I mean, they're currently 28th in three-point attempt rate, 29th in three-point percentage. I mean, that is disastrous. And especially when you consider that they're also bottom 10 in rim frequency and 24th in free throw attempt rate. Like that's that that's just not a recipe for a good offense. And I know we've seen the Suns kind of do that in the past and still find their way to being like top five on that side of the ball. But I mean, that's an uphill climb and I, I don't know what you do. Like, no, like neither of their centers can space, but both of their centers are like so integral to their defense Hunter and Collins. And we can talk about Collins who's now on the trade block for like the 18th straight year. But like, those are both so, so three point shooters on low volume and Murray, I think, has improved as a three-point shooter, but he's still shooting under 35% from deep. And then on the bench, you have A.J. Griffin. But uh, apart from that, no real solutions to that issue. So I don't know. That that herder trade has just been so, so disastrous. And then the Collins thing, right? Like, when has he not been on the trade block? And if at any point he was able to fetch them something that would make their team better, it just feels like he would have been traded by now but it doesn't seem like there is a huge appetite for him around the league. And also like what type of player would they be looking to get back for him? Would it be a three and D wing with some ball skills? Because that's kind of the player that Deandre Hunter is supposed to be. And it's also frankly, the player that AJ Griffin looks like he actually is like Dude, that's if, Griffin if we're looking great, at bright man. spots for that team. Yeah. Like they clearly do need to get more shooting and, and like using Collins 
who has at times looked like a viable stretch big, but who's currently shooting 21% from deep, like using him to get a player who can really help up the three-point volume and improve the spacing would be worthwhile. But you know is what? that creating another hole just to address the one that currently exists? Um, a make-believe deal I'd like to see, but I don't think would happen is the Pacers make a deal that I think it makes them better in the short term, but also, you know, doesn't at all. It's not at all like an all-in move. They'd still be a young team on the rise. I'd like to see the Pacers like package Buddy Heald salary filler and like maybe a, a couple picks and see if that they can get John Collins. Because I think John Collins in Indiana and like them finding a power forward of the future for that core would be really good. And I think Heald in Atlanta would be friggin' awesome and address a lot of the concerns you're talking about offensively. Again, I'm not... I don't know what the Pacers would do that. And who knows? Maybe the Hawks would laugh at the very note. They'd be like, really? Like we, the way we value John Collins, we're going to, I don't think they should laugh at it, but maybe they would. The mistake, I don't think I they th- can afford to laugh at that at this point. Uh, dude, you know? I agree. That's what I'm saying. I, I, I'm not just throwing that out there as like pie in the sky. I said, I say, I think it's make believe because I don't think the Hawks would do it, but I think they should. Like, I think that's a deal that would actually benefit both teams. What I was going to say with, when it comes to John Collins and the Hawks is I don't necessarily think they overpaid him based on like what he had done to that point in his career. But I do think they made a mistake in that. Like it's tough. I, I understand it from a front office's perspective where they're like, okay, look, we know we're probably gonna have to trade this guy eventually, but now he's coming up for an extension and we don't want to lose him for nothing because he's obviously worth too much to us. So we're going to have to pay him and then trade him later. I do understand that concept for sure. I just think that, it's, and it's hard to say when you're not obviously in the room where these conversations are happening, but I just think they needed to make that deal before John Collins became the big money player, like actually started on the contract he's on. Because while it's, I, it's not that I think he's not worth the contract he signed based on what he had done, I do think it's hard to find teams that are willing to pay John Collins 25, 26 million a year, two, three years from now, whether you think he's worth it or not. And that's why I think, to your point, they can't afford to now thumb their nose at certain trade packages because it's not the kind of return they thought they would once get for John Collins. If Buddy healed and a first or maybe a cup like a first and a first swap, some salary filler comes your way. Like I think those are deals you have to take, especially now that you have moved a little closer to all in with the trade you made for DeJounte. I think what makes it tough is, and I'm not saying this is the right approach, I just think that it is the reality that there aren't a lot of teams around the league that are looking for a kind of traditional power forward in the John Collins mold. I think a lot of them would prefer to either have a big wing playing the four or to actually just have another big playing the four who can really protect the rim. And Collins is kind of in that in-between space where he doesn't really do either of those things. He's not in the vein of, I don't know, like a Bojan Bogdanovich, for instance, like a small ball four who, you know, isn't really going to help your defense as a power forward, but is really going to bring some offensive punch. And he's not like your, you know, Jaron Jackson or Evan Mobley type power forward where they're big men, but like they also have a defensive versatility to make it work at the four position. He's in between those two kind of power forward ideals and the way the teams are conceptualizing that position. And that makes it difficult. And so as much as I think he's a really skilled player, I just don't know that that archetype has a lot of value right now. The funny thing is I think that 
archetype theoretically should have a lot of value to the Hawks. And I've said this before. I think he's quite a good fit there. And him shooting the ball the way that he shot it this year maybe changes that a bit. But where where I'm at is, to me, Hunter has been pretty disappointing on both ends of the floor this season. Yeah. I don't I haven't seen like really much development from him. And he's shooting the ball kind of okay. The self-creation stuff that we saw real flashes of a couple seasons ago hasn't really progressed. I think his defense has actually maybe regressed a little bit. And he's poison-pilled, so it wouldn't be feasible, I don't think, even if they wanted to trade him this season. But maybe looking toward the offseason, part of me wonders if, you know, internal dynamics and potential John Collins discontent aside, part of me wonders if Hunter would be the guy that it would make more sense to trade. Because despite being a worse player overall, in my opinion, he would probably be more desirable just because of positional scarcity and preference. And with Griffin, who again, I think has been fantastic and one of the real bright spots for this team, with him waiting in the wings, I almost feel like Hunter would be more replaceable. You know, because yeah. the idea, I guess, would be, and the idea probably is for the Hawks, trading John Collins and sliding Hunter up to the four. But I, when he when they've done that, when he's played the four, I, he hasn't really looked up to it to me, defensively. Yeah. Like his skills, which are kind of like so-so at the three, play up more at the four. But I don't know if defensively that's the right position for him. So, um, so I don't know, man. Like what? I'll close it off with this, and this is sort of like why, or one reason anyway, that this whole thing is like so confounding to me, and I don't know what to make of this team at all. You look at their opening night starting lineup, their preferred starting lineup, or maybe it's not preferred because apparently they're still trying to trade Collins, but like their starting five of Capella, Collins, Hunter, Murray, Trey Young. Third most used five-man unit in the league so far. They're at nearly 400 minutes. Plus 10 net rating. Pretty much elite on both sides of the ball. Like, maybe... Maybe it works, and they maybe just don't move like, anybody. And they just need to like figure some stuff out around the margins. You know, like it's so, it's so confusing to me because you watch it and like it doesn't look good. And even when those five guys are on the floor, it doesn't look like they're dominating opposing teams. But the numbers say otherwise. So the early returns on this version of the team have been kind of all over the map. But on the whole, certainly I don't think they're where they would have expected or hoped to be at this point in time. Anyway, that is a a long segment on the Hawks. One of the most interesting to me this season for not really the reasons that you would want to be interesting as an NBA team. But let's leave that there. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the Knicks. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, on last week's Make or Miss segment, I asked you about the New York Knicks and whether you felt that they would be able to remain in a top six spot in the Eastern Conference. Something they had gotten up to with an eight-game win streak 
that streak has since been snapped by Pascal Siakam and the Toronto Raptors, but there they are still sitting in sixth with top 10 marks on both sides of the ball, Cash. Tenth in offense, ninth in defense, and yes, Celtics are the only other East team that are top 10 in both sides. Unbelievable. And yet, you spit on any suggestion that they could actually be a top six seed and avoid the play-in. You didn't seem to have much faith in them sustaining what they've done so far. So, tell me why. Well, I just don't think they're that good, talent-wise. Look, Jalen Brunson has been worth every penny for them so far. He's been great. Julius Randle, I think, has been kind of like in between what he was last year and what he was his All-NBA year, like kind of in the middle, which I guess you can expect. I actually think so. If you, if you look at the numbers and you watch his game, Randall actually has improved his shot diet a bit where he's taken about 10% off of his mid-range frequency and moved that outside the arc. So his shot diet is better, but he's not actually shooting it well out there. So it hasn't really reflected in the numbers too much, but he is overall a little more efficient than last year. It hasn't been as good as two years ago. Um, you know, his defensive effort is still inconsistent. There are games where it looks like, oh, Julius Randle's really putting in a, a shift on the defensive end. And then there are other games where it's like, he doesn't give a shit about defense. Um, RJ Barrett has not been good. He's been better during this streak for sure over the last like two, three weeks. But on the whole, I don't think he's been good and certainly not nearly good enough given the contract they gave him. And when you put it all together, this team that's four games over 500 and top 10 on both ends of the court somehow, when they're three best players, like we we talked about how disappointing it is that when the Hawks' two best players are on the court together, they're only like plus three-ish per 100 possessions. When the Knicks' three best players are all on the court together, Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle and RJ Barrett, otherwise known as the mid three are all on the court together. They have a negative net rating. They are losing those minutes. And look, the Knicks, a lot of the youngsters on the Knicks that I had some hopes for this season actually haven't been that good. I don't think, but collectively the way they change a game with their pace and the way they get out and run, I think collectively those guys have been good together. And it's led to the Knicks actually having the third most effective bench or second most effective bench in the NBA by net rating when three plus or two plus bench guys are on a camera. But anyway, the point is, I think a lot of this is being carried by some kind of like transitional lineups and uh, a bench that's taking teams by surprise. And look, good for them. It's worked for them. I'm sure there could be Knicks optimists who say look, the fact that they've been this good and top 10 on both ends, despite the fact Barrett hasn't really played that well yet with Randall kind of being, I don't know what you'd call him, but I just don't buy it. I, they're well, let not, me, let me I think, you, I think they're a very, I think they're a very average at best team. I don't think they're going to go into the complete tank and end up like 10 games under 500, but I think they're more like a slightly below average to average team. That should be like 38, 39, 40, 41, maybe 42 wins right around 40 wins in a play in spot by the end of the season. And I think that's where they'll end up. And I think, Again, I think their performance when their three best players are on the court together is exactly kind of the team they are. Underwhelming given how much money they're giving those guys. Like, they did not overpay Brunson. Brunson's great. Like I said, he's been worth over every penny, but... They underpaid but when, if we're being real. Well, there you go. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not... Nothing about this is on Jalen Brunson, but when you're losing the minutes with your top three players who are combining to make 62 million this year, 76 million next year, and are all under contract through at least 2025, 2026. That's just, 
a non-starter for me. That's unacceptable. And I don't care that right now, 32 games into the season, you're four games over 500 with good marks on both ends and in the top six. The ceiling is not high. And but forget forget about their contracts. Forget about long term because that's not really what I'm asking, right? Like, right. And in the, but even in the short term, that's what I'm saying. I I don't think. But the, but let me team, ask you this then. So you're saying they're being carried by their bench and by these transitional lineups, right? But if they've proven that they can be carried by those lineups, if we're just talking about what they can do for the regular season, then why does that matter? Because I think over the course of 82 games, they are not going to outplay all but five other teams in the Eastern Conference. Mm. Um, yeah, and I mean, look, I, I'll make a counter argument, even though I don't disagree with you. Like, I don't foresee them finishing top six either. To me, it's really just because I don't believe in their offense. Like, I don't think that yeah. their offense is remotely top 10 level, and I frankly am not really sure how it's top 10 at the moment, apart from, I guess, offensive rebounding. Like, that's been a huge part of it, is they just dominate on the offensive glass and that's a good formula like we've seen that yep. work we saw that work for the raptors and the grizzlies last yep. year um and we're, we're kind of seeing that take over the league a little bit like offensive rebounding is way up this year as teams start to recognize i think how valuable those extra possessions can be but i don't think they're sustaining anything resembling a top 10 offense over the course of the year because they don't have a lot of shooting outside of brunson the off the bounce creation and playmaking is still pretty limited they really struggle against zone. So I just think I, I kind of find their offense underwhelming on the whole, even though I like that they, they're they not playing offense like a lot of Tom Thibodeau teams in the past. Like they actually have a decent amount of pace and, you know, they're they're moving the ball and cutting a little bit quicker and with more purpose than they did last year, certainly. So that's good to see, but I just don't think the talent level on the offensive side of the ball is there. But I do think that they can sustain a top 10 defense. And if they can do that while just sort of treading water offensively and staying around league average, then I do think there is a chance, even though I don't think that's going to happen, I do think there's a chance that they can actually stick around in that top six range. And a lot of people have pointed this out, but like Quentin Grimes coming back and being part of that starting lineup has had a huge downstream effect in terms of improving that defense, like he himself is obviously a great point of attack defender, but him being there also makes Barrett's life a lot easier. And I think more importantly than that, I think he makes their big men's lives easier on defense because their base scheme is kind of like a shallow drop and his ability to navigate screens and stay attached just leaves them exposed so much less frequently, right? Like having to play one on two less frequently. And I think, one area where we've really seen that impact them is like their defensive rebounding has improved significantly. And I think that is a direct result of their bigs not having to commit as often, right. And being able to focus on boxing out more Mitchell Robinson. I feel like I've noticed that specifically with him, like because he, his defensive rebounding rate early in the season was like catastrophically bad. And that's really improved. He's also just improved. Like he's tamped down the fouling. He's not quite as jumpy on fakes, although that's still an issue for him. And when he defends with discipline, he's a monster rim protector. And I think just between their two centers, like him and Hartenstein, 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 I never quite know how to say it. Uh, like between that, between the, the, the point of attack defense being improved, the, the really solid rim protection in the middle, the fact that, you know, obviously Randall's focus and energy level of the defensive end can waver 
Um, I think the defense is good enough. And they're versatile, right? Like they can do a lot of different things. They switch a lot on and off the ball. And I think early in the season, they were a little bit sloppy with that switching, but lately they've been really airtight. And, you know, even when they're playing their their kind of drop pick and roll coverage, they'll late switch a lot. They still overhelp kind of a lot. They give up a lot of threes as a result of that. And right now, you could say it's a little bit luck-driven because opponents are not shooting particularly well on those threes. And giving up a lot of threes and having your opponents just clank away from deep is a very good way to ensure that you have an unsustainably good mark at the defensive end of the floor. But in spite of that, I think the process has been pretty sound for them at that end. So that's what I would point to and be like, yeah, this might be sustainable. But offensively, I don't know. I mean, like having Grimes back has actually, I think, helped them on both ends of the floor because I think he's a really good sort of go-go attacker off of the catch that does help inject them with more pace in the half court. And I think having Brunson there has really helped Randall slide into like a more optimized role for himself offensively. Yeah, because we talked about this the last couple of years, like Julius Randall having the skills that he has at his size in in the offensive arsenal that he has is good. Like the fact that he can play make from his position and at his size is good. Don't get me wrong, but Julius Randle isn't good enough as a playmaker and with the ball in his hands to be your like absolute fulcrum offensively. Like he is not that kind. He's not like straight up point forward. Okay. He can be a playmaking big, but he is not a point forward. And too often over the last couple of years, he's had to both be their like lead initiator and lead creator for himself and all. So I actually think this role is much more suited to him where he, he can still be a playmaking for there. Like there are possessions that can run through him, but for the most part, he's more of a finisher that can like leverage the advantages Brunson creates, you know, when they're at, he ends up in a four on three or whatever the case may be. I just think it's a much better suited role for him. Again, the, the efficiency has been fine, but it hasn't actually quite been, as good as maybe the Knicks would have hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that changes. Like, I don't know, maybe if he does get hot from deep or something, given the improved shot diet, maybe we do see a few weeks where he goes on a run like he had a couple years ago. I don't know. But I'm with you in that. I believe their defense is good and will continue to be pretty good. And I don't believe their offense is anywhere near this good. But at the end of the day, if they end up with like a middle of the pack or even slightly below average offense with a really good defense – that'll win you a lot of regular season games and they'll definitely be a play in team and be in the mix. Um, and that's just kind of what I see them as this year. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're a play in team. And it's, it's again, it's not like I'm saying they're shit and they're going to go into the absolute gutter. I just don't think they're nearly as good as their record. And this recent eight game winning streak that ended with like a 40 point win over golden state. What have you believe? Yeah, I think that's fair. I will say like a, I didn't catch all of those eight games, obviously, but the ones that I did catch, it wasn't like, you know, they were fluking their way to these wins or it was just like the result of hot shooting. Although, again, it did have a lot to do with their opponents shooting really poorly from three. They looked super connected defensively and they were turning those defensive stops into transition offensive chances. Like they were, they were playing really well. Now, can they continue to play at that level? Maybe not. But I don't think it was like a completely fluky win streak either. Like I tip my cap to them for the way that they've played. But 
yeah, there are some offensive limitations there. I also think this is a really, really small niche kind of nitpick, but I wish that they made better use of Hartenstein's offensive skill set. Yeah. Like they, they sort of treat him as if he's just Mitchell Robinson, where like they use him <laughs> just as a straight dive man in the pick and roll, and they don't really run any elbow sets through him, and they don't even really deliver him the ball on the short roll that often. So his playmaking skills almost go to waste. Again, a really small thing, but I just maybe there are like some tiny tweaks that they could make to improve their offense or sustain their offense. And Barrett just playing the way that he's played over the last couple of weeks would obviously go a long way toward doing that because having better and more efficient secondary creation on the wing would just be huge for a team that can kind of like grind to a standstill sometimes and leave it to Brunson to almost create everything for them. And as good as he's been, he's not on that tier of lead guard that can kind of carry an offense by himself. So if Barrett can sustain what he's done, which again is a huge if, then maybe the equation changes in terms of what their offense can be. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I'm going to assume based on the fact that I'm going to out you here, uh, based on the fact that you uh, told me off air that the Knicks are boring as shit. I'm going to assume that you don't have too much more to add to this conversation. I know I don't, but I was going to say, maybe we can wrap up this Knicks talk with this little uh, thought exercise. No gun to your head, but let's just, let's just go through this. Not talking playoffs. Can they beat teams in a four out of seven? Not talking the future. Strictly talking about at the end of this 82 game regular season, based on what you've seen from all these teams so far this season, maybe in your own head, what you think each team might still do, whether it's trade, whatever. Who of these teams do you think the Knicks will finish ahead of in the standings at the end of the regular season? Obviously not Milwaukee, obviously not Boston, obviously not Cleveland. I'm assuming you agree, uh, probably not in Brooklyn and almost definitely not Philly. That's already five teams. So then they would need to maintain their two games up on Miami. So basically they could, they to finish ahead of Miami, they have to just not be two plus games worse than them over the next 50. I do think the heat overtake them. Look, Indiana, who I think a lot of people thought were going to tank. I ended up, you know, writing about Halliburton and made a video about it, how I think actually as presently constructed, they're too good to tank. Halliburton's a big reason for that. Um, I don't think they should trade Miles Turner. We've talked about all that before. The Pacers are only two games behind them. Based on what I've seen this season, if someone asked me, can the Pacers outplay the Knicks by two games over the next 50? I would say yes. Maybe they do end up making maybe, a, a maybe more Maybe if a, they trade for John Collins. Well, there you go, right? So um, the Hawks are an interesting one because I think on paper you can look at it and say they should, but given how confounding we've talked about you know, their situation is, I don't know, maybe they won't. So, okay, so just out of those three so far, I haven't even mentioned Toronto yet, but Miami... Indiana, Atlanta, how many, if any of those teams do you think overtake the Knicks by the end of 82 games? Well, I think throw Toronto into that mix. And this is, uh, but, uh, no, I was going to, yeah, that's going to be dependent on what they decide to do. And, right. you know, do they ultimately decide that taking a small step back in the present makes more sense? Or do they want to make an incremental upgrade? Like they could go in a couple different directions and that could change this. So I would include them so and for- say between those four teams, I would expect that two of them wind up overtaking the Knicks and that the Knicks wind up finishing like eighth. Um, Yeah, I agree. But I could see them, you know, somewhat realistically finishing anywhere in like the six to nine range, which is better than what I would have expected coming into the season. Like I think coming in, I had them finishing ninth or maybe even 10th. So if they're just 
better than probably a lot of people expected them to be, then that's still a successful season and something for them to build on moving forward. Does seeing them perform as well as they have with this group make me even more vexed that they didn't, you know, pull the trigger on the deal for Donovan Mitchell? Yeah, it kind of does. Kind of does. Because Mitchell and Brunson would be incredible together. And this team could be challenging for home court advantage right now, I think, if they had pulled the trigger on that deal. I don't need to throw that in there at the end, but I just felt like, I don't know, I think about it a lot when I watch them play and how much he would have helped them and how all these years that they've spent chasing stars, that guy was right there. Wanted to play there. 25 years old. Three years left on his deal. I mean, come on. That's exactly what I said at the time. I said that Donovan Mitchell is literally the superstar, the exact like the guy that the Knicks have been chasing and missing for like a quarter friggin' century. And then when he became available, they got too cute about it. Or I don't know, they typical Knicks fashion, maybe they thought he's not quite the caliber of star we're chasing and that we're gonna sell it for. Guess what? You haven't had one of those in like a quarter century or more. So you should have done it. Anyway, uh, I'm with you. I think two of those teams leapfrog them, maybe three. I see them in the eight to nine range and either barely scraping in after the play-in or lose it, you know, like missing out after the play-in. But uh, as we were discussing it, I was thinking how funny of a story would it be, not for Knicks fans, but just because of the way, you know, the history is there. If the Knicks season ends with a home play-in loss to Trey Young and the Atlanta Hawks and Trey Young at Madison Square Garden again, Delivers the final dagger. It almost feels inevitable when you put it like yeah. that. But uh, I think we can leave that there. I'll kick it back to you, Cash, for our final fan shout out of the year before we sign off. All right. Final fan shout out of the year goes out to Aiden Dickerson, who reached out on Instagram. I believe he follows both of us on Twitter and interacts with us as well. Uh, anyway, he said uh, he wanted to say he loved. Not just the pod, but the content both of us put out. Reference Joe's Aaron Gordon piece. Reference my uh, piece a few weeks ago on Paolo Boncaro. Um, and said, yeah, he loves the pod, loves our content. Keep up the good work. Aiden has been a supporter of ours for a long time. Funny story. Aiden had actually DM'd me earlier in the year or maybe last year. I don't even remember. And when I went back and searched for our conversation, I realized that I had promised him and never delivered on a fan shout out at the time. Hmm. So... Aiden, sorry for that. Uh, memo to our other listeners that I always tell to reach out. I promise you that doesn't actually happen. I believe the only time it ever has happened is with Aiden, where I promised a fan shout out that he never got at the time, but he's got now. So again, the usual call out at the end of another year that we have made it through here at Pound the Rock um, because of your support. Just like I said before, you know, I don't know how many, I think we started doing the shout outs um, during the pandemic. I think it's been about, maybe 150, 175 episodes since we started doing the shout out. As I've said before, that means there are thousands of you out there based on our listenership that have not reached out and have not received a shout out yet. And we do want to shout you out for allowing us to do what we do. So if you have listened to Pound the Rock at any time in 2022, hit us up. Email joe.wolfond at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Tweet at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Find me on Instagram like Aiden did at Joe underscore 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 cash and let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, maybe don't like about the show, whatever, and we will get you a shout out in 2023. So with that, we are going to sign off here. Again, happy holidays to everybody. Thank you so much for listening to us this year. We're putting a bow on this one and we're putting a bow 
on PTR 2022. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wilfond. Talk to y'all in 2023.